On November 22, 1963, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, was on a trip in Dallas, Texas to meet with state leaders. A motorcade was established and routes chosen to give the President maximum exposure to the crowds. He traveled in an open-top limousine. Joining him were his wife Jacqueline, the Texas Governor John Connolly, and Connolly's wife Nellie. In the 1960 presidential election, Kennedy barely won Texas. He may have expected a less welcoming crowd, but the crowds were so electric it prompted Nellie Connolly to turn around and comment, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. Kennedy replied, No, you certainly can't. These would be his final words. The limousine would turn onto Elm Street and pass the Texas School Depository as gunshots would be fired, striking the president and ending his life. The official narrative states that Lee Harvey Oswald was the shooter and acted alone. But here's the thing. Witness testimonies, the LaPruder film, and an investigation by the Warren Commission would spark more questions and answers, leading many to question whether Oswald really was the culprit. But if it wasn't Oswald, then who was it and why? What if I were to tell you, I know who killed Kennedy, and I know why, and it involves UFOs. You're listening to Conspiracy Season 1, JFK. What will you believe? A few years ago, I was online reading various news articles when I came upon one that briefly mentioned the JFK assassination. It talked about how there were some people who believed his death involved a conspiracy to keep UFOs hidden from the public. I remember thinking, wow, that's interesting, and also hilarious. It sounded more like an Ancient Aliens episode than a credible argument. Little did I know it would send me spiraling down the rabbit hole, eventually concluding there might be something to this wild conspiracy theory. And everyone loves a good conspiracy theory, right? It sparks the imagination and creates that open-ending, well, what if? When most hear the word conspiracy, they immediately associate the term with conspiracy theories. There can be a mark of craziness assigned to any serious conversation on the matter. A conspiracy is a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. And let's be honest, that happens. We all know about 9-11. Yep, conspiracy. Here are a few other historical conspiracies you may or may not have heard about. The Catiline Conspiracy, a plot by a Roman senator to start an uprising against the Republic. The Gunpowder Plot, disgruntled Catholics scheme to assassinate King James I and install a puppet, the king's daughter. The July 20th Plot, German officers plot to kill Hitler and stage a coup against the Nazi High Command. You may better know this conspiracy as Operation Valkyrie. And, of course, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Since conspiracies are real, that should mean a conspiracy theory with supportive evidence should at the very least be considered. Over the course of the season, I will be offering many incredible claims, and I'll be presenting a case which I link together by historical events and all the demonstrative evidence I've gathered. To see the show notes and supporting documents, please visit auroraborisinc.com. There, you can find and read for yourself everything that I have, and then decide what to believe. That's auroraborisinc.com, O-U-R-O-B-O-R-I-S-I-N-C.com.
O-S-I-N-K.com. To understand this case, we have to go back to 1941 and to the young John F. Kennedy. The events that follow are extremely important because they parallel Kennedy's military and political career. They offer insight into what information Kennedy may or may not have known, and the information he definitely did know. It's all connected. In 1941, Kennedy was beginning his military service in the U.S. Navy. He was just commissioned an ensign and assigned to the staff of Naval Intelligence in D.C. He would be responsible for collecting intelligence reports from overseas. This assignment is critical to the important events that would follow. It places him at the center of U.S. intelligence and in a position that's close to James Forrestal. Starting in 1940, James Forrestal was Undersecretary of the Navy and would eventually be appointed Secretary of the Navy upon the death of his superior, Frank Knox, in 1944. Forrestal would serve in that position until 1947. During those seven years, he was a leader at the highest levels and at the forefront of all critical decisions being made during World War II and the post-war efforts. Forrestal was a close family friend and a confidant of Joseph Kennedy, JFK's well-known and powerful father. Forrestal would become close to JFK and over the years would attempt to recruit him to his staff. Kennedy's military position and personal relationship with Forrestal would subject him to classified information and created a solid foundation with many contacts in the U.S. intelligence community. World War II was ravaging Europe, and the U.S. had just entered the war when a strange event occurred. Between February 23rd and February 25th, 1942, less than three months after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and after the U.S. officially entered World War II, there was an incident that occurred over Los Angeles and to this day has never been properly explained. Around 7.15 p.m. on the 23rd, a Japanese submarine surfaced off the coast of Santa Barbara, California. It attacked the Elwood oil field, but the damage was only about $500, and there were zero injuries. The next day, Naval Intelligence issued a warning that an attack could be expected. The public started to panic, expecting the Japanese to storm the beaches at any moment. What happened next is still talked about today, and quite frankly, is pretty strange. In the book series The Army Air Forces in World War II, published by the Office of Air Force History in 1983, what happened next is described. During the night of the 24th and 25th of February 1942, unidentified objects caused a succession of alerts in Southern California. Radars picked up unidentified targets 120 miles west of Los Angeles. Anti-aircraft batteries were alerted at 0215 and were put on green alert, ready to fire a few minutes later. The AAF kept its pursuit planes on the ground, preferring to await indications of the scale and direction of any attack before committing its limited fighter force. Radars tracked the approaching target to within a few miles off the coast, and at 0221, the regional controller ordered a blackout. Thereafter, the information center was flooded with reports of enemy planes, even though the mysterious object tracked in from the sea and seems to have vanished. At 0243, planes were reported near Long Beach, and a few minutes later, a coast artillery colonel spotted about 25 planes at 12,000 feet over Los Angeles. At 0306, a balloon carrying a red flare was seen over Santa Monica, 
and four batteries of anti-aircraft artillery opened fire, whereupon the air over Los Angeles erupted like a volcano. These mysterious forces dropped no bombs and, despite the fact that 1,400 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition were directed against them, suffered no losses. There were reports that four enemy planes had been shot down and one was supposed to have landed in flames at a Hollywood intersection. Residents in a 40-mile arc along the coast watched from hills or rooftops as the play of guns and searchlights provided the first real drama of the war for civilians of the mainland. At 0721 a.m., the order of all clear was given. Within hours, the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, released a statement informing the nation that the incident was a false alarm. He claimed that the entire incident was due to anxiety and war nerves. In contradiction to Secretary Knox's statement, Secretary of War Henry Stimson stated the incident was real and offered these two theories. Either they were commercial planes operated by an enemy from secret fields in California or Mexico, or they were light planes launched from Japanese submarines. The Army and Navy's conflicting explanations led the New York Times to release an editorial on the 28th of February. They expressed a belief that the more the incident was studied, the more incredible it became, and if the batteries were firing on nothing at all, as Secretary Knox implies, it is a sign of expensive incompetence and jitters. If the batteries were firing on real planes, some of them as low as 9,000 feet, as Secretary Stimson declares, why were they completely ineffective? Why did no American planes go up to engage them, or even to identify them? The real question remains, were UFOs truly present? If there were, did any get shot down? A few documents add clarity to these questions. A February 26, 1942 document from General George Marshall to President Roosevelt gives this preliminary report. The following is the information we have from GHQ at this moment regarding the air alarm over Los Angeles of yesterday morning, from details available at this hour. Unidentified airplanes other than American Army or Navy planes were probably over Los Angeles and were fired on by elements of the 37th California Brigade between 3.12 and 4.15 a.m. These units expended 1,400 rounds of ammunition. As many as 15 airplanes may have been involved, flying at various speeds and officially reported as being very slow as to much as 2,000 miles per hour and at elevations from 9,000 to 18,000 feet. No bombs were dropped, no casualties among our troops, no planes were shot down, no American Army or Navy planes were in action. This document claims no planes were shot down, but another leaked document from Marshall to Roosevelt dated the following month in March states different. Regarding the air raid over Los Angeles, it was learned by Army G2 that Rear Admiral Anderson, Naval Intelligence, has informed the War Department of a naval recovery of an unidentified airplane off the coast of California with no bearing on conventional explanation. Further, it has been revealed that the Army Air Corps has also recovered a similar craft in the San Bernardino Mountains, east of Los Angeles, which cannot be identified as conventional aircraft. This headquarters has come to the determination that the mystery airplanes are in fact not earthly, and according to secret intelligence sources, they are in all probability of interplanetary origin. According to these documents, not only were there unidentified flying objects, but at least two were recovered, one by the Navy and one by the Army. 
These documents are supported by J. Edgar Hoover in a handwritten note. We must insist upon full access to discs recovered. For instance, in the L.A. case, the Army grabbed it and would not let us have it for cursory examination. What did Kennedy know about these recovered craft? He was assigned to naval intelligence at the time. Did he find out the truth from Forrestal? Forrestal would surely have known, considering his position in the Navy, and the fact that Admiral Walter Anderson, mentioned earlier in one of the memos, was the previous director of naval intelligence. He would have informed his bosses, Frank Knox and James Forrestal, of any recovered craft. A few years later, in the summer of 1945, James Forrestal was now Secretary of the Navy and traveled to post-war Europe to inspect the damage caused by World War II. Germany had fallen and the Allied governments were attempting to pick up the pieces. President Roosevelt suddenly died from a cerebral hemorrhage back in April, and Vice President Harry Truman was sworn in as the new Commander-in-Chief. He would rely on the advice from Forrestal and other senior leaders on how to proceed post-war. Other than inspecting the damage to European infrastructure, Forrestal was also there to inspect and assess the advanced technologies and programs from Germany. The Germans were known for their advanced rocketry, most notably the V-1 and V-2 rockets that were used against Great Britain. The U.S. had great interest in these technologies, and after uncovering other advancements made by the Germans, a secret program called Operation Overcast, later renamed and best known as Operation Paperclip, was implemented. The program would recruit and repatriate over 1,600 German scientists, bringing them to the U.S. and integrating them into U.S. programs. The most famous of these is Werner von Braun. He helped NASA create the Apollo program and the rockets that sent man to the moon. Of the technological advancements discovered by U.S. forces, most were surprised to find an advanced aviation program. The former CIA agent Virgil Armstrong had this to say, We know that in the early parts of the war, there were certain factions of the Allied forces that did not believe Hitler had a secret weapon, and it wasn't until the Americans made much emphasis of this that they began to look at it seriously, and indeed did discover that Hitler not only had a secret weapon, he had what we would call today a UFO or spacecraft. Supporting this claim is the former director of Project Blue Book, Captain Edward Ruppelt. He says this, When World War II ended, the Germans had several radical types of aircraft and guided missiles under development. The majority were in the most preliminary stages, but they were the only known craft that could even approach the performance of objects reported to UFO observers. Eisenhower was supreme Allied commander of Europe at the time and would certainly know of any advanced technologies discovered. It is known that he was also present in Europe at the time Forrestal was there with Kennedy. Kennedy would meet Eisenhower in Germany, writing about it in his diary, later being published as Prelude to Leadership. The trip with Forrestal is significant because it puts Kennedy in front of high-profile leaders and offers an opportunity to see what was discovered in Germany. The importance of this visit cannot be understated. Kennedy had recently retired from the military, and Forrestal was trying to recruit Kennedy to his staff. Kennedy would refuse and decide to run for office in the House of Representatives. Kennedy would be subjected to classified intel, and his presence with Forrestal would tell everyone he met on the trip that he was a man who could be trusted, something he could use to his benefit in the political arena. Did Kennedy see anything that would remind him of the battle over Los Angeles? What did Forrestal tell him on the trip? What secret technologies did Kennedy witness? Did this trip have any bearing on his interest in UFOs later in life? In 1946, Kennedy was successful in his bid to get elected to Congress. 
He was in his first term for less than seven months when arguably one of the most well-known events in modern history, an event rivaling his own assassination, occurred. On July 2, 1947, Mac Brazell is on his farm about 75 miles from Roswell, New Mexico, when he hears a loud explosion. He would wait until the following morning to investigate, and to his surprise, finds the wreckage site. He waits until July 7th before reporting what he finds to the local sheriff, who then notifies Roswell Army Airfield. This has always puzzled me. Why would he wait a full three days before notifying authorities? I've looked into this and have never found a satisfactory answer. If anything, I've only found conflicting statements. My assumption is that Brazil expected someone to show up, making inquiries, and when that never happened, he took action. Once the Roswell Airfield was notified, it sent two military officers to investigate, and the Army authorizes a press release stating that they had recovered a crashed flying disc. Now at the time, the Roswell base had the only operational nuclear bomber wing, making it one of the most secure places on the planet. Base personnel were highly trained, something you would expect on such an important military site. The day after the press release, the Army made a correction, stating they made a mistake and the crash was not a flying disc, but a crashed weather balloon. Now remember, these are highly trained individuals who are responsible for the only operational nuclear bomber wing. This kind of mistake would certainly make me question everything. Should our trust in those operating such an important military base be placed elsewhere? After the Army's correction, any interest by the public faded, believing the whole incident was only over a crashed weather balloon. Roswell would become a distant memory until 1978, when Major Jesse Marcel, one of the two original military officers who conducted the initial Brazil Farm investigation, contacts Stanton Friedman. Correcting the official narrative to Friedman, Marcel would allege the crash debris was nothing we had ever seen before. Expanding, he claimed, the debris appeared unearthly and had hieroglyphic writing. It was not an aircraft of any kind that I am sure of. We didn't know what it was. It was nothing made on this earth. Another whistleblower, Lieutenant Walter Hout, the public affairs officer for the Roswell Army Airfield at the time, would put his testimony to paper in an affidavit and have it notarized in 2002. It wouldn't be published until 2007, authorized to be released after his death. He passed away in December of 2005. Some of the startling claims Hout make are these. There was a staff meeting on the morning of July 8th on how to handle the situation. There were actually two crash sites, the public only knowing about the one on Mac Brazell's farm. The second was about 40 miles north of Roswell and was the more important of the two. Directly from the affidavit, it says, One of the main concerns discussed at the meeting was whether we should go public or not with the discovery. General Ramey proposed a plan which I believed originated from his bosses at the Pentagon. Attention needed to be diverted from the more important site, north of town, by acknowledging the other site, Mac Brazil's farm. Too many civilians were already involved and the press already was informed. Hout alleges that he was instructed by the Roswell base commander to dictate a press release that the army had recovered a flying disc. Later, General Ramey retracted the flying disc story to create confusion and mitigate any further investigations from the public or press. It also kept any attention away from the second site. Major Marcel would be ordered by Ramey to travel to Fort Worth and present the alleged wreckage material to the media. This was done to bolster Ramey's claim that it was only a crashed balloon, and it worked. 
Walter Hout also claims in his affidavit that he was taken by the base commander to one of the hangars housing the actual wreckage material. Starting at item 12 in his affidavit, he claims, Before leaving the base, Colonel Blatchard took me personally to Building 84, a B-29 hangar located on the east side of the tarmac. Upon first approaching the building, I observed that it was under heavy guard both outside and inside. Once inside, I was permitted from a safe distance to first observe the object just recovered north of town. It was approximately 12 to 15 feet in length, not quite as wide, about 6 feet high, and more of an egg shape. Lighting was poor, but its surface did appear metallic. No windows, portholes, wings, tail section, or landing gear were visible. Also from a distance, I was able to see a couple of bodies under a canvas terrapin. Only the heads extended beyond the covering, and I was not able to make out any features. The heads did appear larger than normal, and the contour of the canvas over the bodies suggested the size of a ten-year-old child. At a later date in Blanchard's office, he would extend his arm about four feet above the floor to indicate the height. An important revelation is that Hout believed the Pentagon was directly involved. Leaked classified documents corroborate Hout and reveal that the senior military official involved with the alleged cover-up was none other than the Army Chief of Staff, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was appointed the U.S. Army Chief of Staff on November 19, 1945, after serving as the Supreme Allied Commander and occupied Germany's first governor. Placed in these high positions, Eisenhower was deeply familiar with the previously mentioned Battle over Los Angeles and Operation Paperclip. Two documents offer proof that Eisenhower was aware of the crash and also in charge. The first is a memo to Nathan Twining, the commanding general at Air Marshal Command, Wright Army Airfield, later renamed Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. He orders Twining to travel to Alamogordo Army Airfield to write a report of the crash and then travel to White Sands to make an appraisal of the recovered wreckage. White Sands Missile Base was where the former Nazi scientists were relocated during Operation Paperclip. They were specialists in rocket technology and trusted as the best experts to assess the retrieved objects. The other document is a memo dated July 9th from President Truman to General Twining asking him to communicate with Eisenhower and follow his lead. A week later, Twining reports back that aviation experts concluded that the disc was not created by the U.S. or any other country. Now in Congress, Kennedy could have used his new congressional powers and his intelligence network to get the truth about Roswell. Being interested by reports coming out of the Roswell airfield about a flying saucer crash, it would undoubtedly pique his interest after his knowledge of the previous alleged events. Did it involve covert Nazi technologies that the Army was developing? Or could the incident have involved a genuine interplanetary craft? In a classified report by a covert Army intelligence unit, it mentions Kennedy as one of the officials given a report of the Roswell incident. This intelligence unit was called the Counterintelligence Corps, and the report states, It has become known to the CIC that some of the recovery operation was shared with Representative John F. Kennedy, Massachusetts Democrat, elected to Congress in 46, son of Joseph P. Kennedy, Commissioner on Organization for the Executive Branch of the Government. Kennedy had limited duty as a naval officer assigned to naval intelligence during the war. It is believed that information was obtained from a source in Congress who was close to Secretary for the Air Force. The events between 1941 and 1947, leading up to Roswell, lay the foundation for things to come. 
The United States has a rich and diverse history, but it's my opinion that the year of 1947 would become a turning point, or maybe even a breaking point, for the future of the U.S. and its citizens. Beyond 1947, it became nearly impossible to make any meaningful prediction. Something happened that changed the world so radically, it made the world incomprehensible to those living in pre-1947. This historical development was a one-way transition. Once done, things could not be undone. This something was Roswell. I think most historians would disagree and look at World War II as the turning point. I think this is true if you only look at the surface, but it was a series of events that occurred immediately after Roswell that would have the biggest impact on the future. As proof, I want to list some dates and events for you. It would most certainly take another season of this podcast to break down what I'm about to list and to give the full context is beyond the scope of this podcast, but I believe it's important to mention. In 1947, John F. Kennedy begins his career in politics and starts his first term in the House of Representatives. In July, the Roswell incident occurs. July 26th, Truman signs the National Security Act of 1947. This set up a unified military establishment, as well as creating the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Council, the United States Air Force, formerly known as the Army Air Forces, and the Joint Chief of Staffs. This act placed the national military establishment under the control of a single Secretary of Defense. On September 17th, James Forrestal is confirmed by the Senate as the first Secretary of Defense. Once again, the close friend of the Kennedy family, and to JFK, is placed in a position of power and knowledge. This would give Kennedy a direct line to access intelligence and information. September 18th, the National Military Establishment formally begins operations. If you see, shortly after Roswell, all these things start to happen that have huge impacts on the government and the country and the world. And the subject of our next episode, on September 24th, President Truman issues a memorandum to James Forrestal authorizing Operation Majestic 12. Next time on Conspiracy, JFK. A secret and covert group is formed, centralizing power and knowledge. James Forrestal commits suicide. Or was it murder? This is an Aurora Boris Inc. production.